Uh, thank you, Brad. Uh, if you didn't catch that, my name is Austin Simon. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and it is uh, my joy to be up here this morning as we continue our series through uh, the book of Samuel, just looking at the life of David and the promise of the king. And, and sometimes I find that the Old Testament can be uh, difficult. It's something we don't always know what to do with. But here in the Old Testament, we find a really great theology in these stories because we know what to do with, but. And uh, I'm going to kind of jump to the end here and quote John Calvin, who says it better than, than I could and tell you where we're going this morning to look at David the king and his kingdom. Uh, Calvin said this The earthly reign of David is a token by which we must contemplate the reign of our Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation of his church to the end of the world. And so if you don't hear anything else this morning, that's the point of this text. Uh, in David, we get to see a type of the greater king of God's people. David is an example both of Christ to come and uh, an example of spiritual change in the life of the believer. And so hopefully as we look at the text this morning, what shines through is that Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God and he overcomes all opposition to it in the world and in our hearts. And as he does that, uh, God and man gets to dwell together again uh, perfectly, which is what we lost uh, as we fell in the garden of Eden. And here's the thing, the gospel uh, is not an advice, or a piece of good advice, or a list of do's and don'ts, it's news, and we say that a lot, it's good news, and it changes everything about how we should live. And my job this morning as the preacher is not to stand up here and give advice or a list of rules to follow, but rather it's to declare that good news of Christ the King coming. And exalt Jesus so that we as people can see how he changes us and the world around us and submit our lives to him, and so these chapters uh, they'll show us that uh, it really is good news that we have a king. That the kingdom of God is here and it will grow into this all-encompassing reality as the king overcomes all opposition to his reign. And in your worship folder, you'll see we we have a lot to cover. We're starting in Second Samuel two and going all the way through Second Samuel five. Um, I couldn't include all of it, so if you have a Bible, you got to encourage you to follow along there because there will be some references to other verses as well. Uh, let's jump into the text this morning, starting in 2 Samuel 2. It'll be on the uh, screen behind me as well. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To what shall I go? And he said, To Hebrew. So David went up there. And David brought up his men there with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came there and anointed David king over the house of Judah. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishmosheth, so the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanim, and made him king over Gilead and the Ashurites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all of Israel. And there's a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all of Israel understood that day had not been the king's will to put to death Abner and son of Abner. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to King Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them. At Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. 
David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king of men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David, and David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. Uh, so say it with me. The grass withers, and the flower fades, and the word of our God fades forever. And so uh, there really is a lot to cover here. Uh, like I said, there's, there's far too much to cover in one morning. So we're just going to look at three things. They're outlined in the worship form there. Uh, we're going to look at the kingdom of God and its establishment, the kingdom of man, our rebellion against the kingdom of God, and then finally we'll see the kingdom of God's kingdom. Uh, so let's start with the kingdom of God, and it really is a kingdom that is established in small, out-of-the-way places, and by small, out-of-the-way means. But that doesn't mean it is any less real or significant. If we look at the beginning of chapter 2, Saul has just died, which finally clears the way for David to become king. And it really is a turning point in the story because David, he's done things differently than you might expect. Certainly differently than I probably would have wanted to. He hasn't taken control and seized Israel for himself, but rather he's willingly submitted to Saul, who was anointed before him, and operated by the word and wisdom of God rather than the word and wisdom of the world. And here at the beginning of his kingdom, we don't see anything different, and I don't think we should expect anything different. David begins by inquiring of the Lord, chapter 2 says. He doesn't act without first making sure he's in line with the will and the heart of the Lord. And so we see David keep the Lord's word and go where he calls him. And that's why he's anointed king in Hebrew. And Hebrew is, is not uh, some bustling capital city. It's really kind of a rural suburb of Jerusalem. And there in that uh, tiny hill country, he is anointed king. He's put on the throne. And God and I raised his kingdom there. And David was just king of one tribe in a small town, but the kingdom was established in three months. And we see that God's promises really are true and sure. David had already been anointed king. It's been roughly 15 to 20 years since he was anointed king by Samuel. And uh, one of the commentators I read this week, he says it really well. Uh, Time cannot erode God's promises. Nor can enemies sabotage them. His promises are sure. And that changes everything about how modern believers should read their Bible. And here, as modern believers, this is what we want to see. The kingdom of God is seemingly small, unseen beginnings, but it is very real. This is God's MO. He has always used the insignificant and the small and the weak to establish his kingdom and show the world. And that is what we see in Hebrew, a small beginning, but for the first time in history, God's chosen king sits on the throne. And that's good news. See, Jesus, he describes the kingdom as a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds that grows into the largest tree in the garden. And we've already said David's kingdom is a precursor to Christ's kingdom. Because the kingdom of God is not just a chunk of real estate in the middle of East during the reign of David. The significance of his kingdom, Israel, in the Old Testament is that it represents a new Eden, the place where God can dwell with man once again after our sin had lost that privilege. God has made a way for his special presence to dwell with his people. 
And it was never meant to stop at the borders of Israel in the Old Testament. The kingdom was supposed to expand past the borders of Israel into the whole world. David's kingdom here is the beginning of the cosmic kingdom of Christ. Israel is not the end of the story. It's just the beginning. And we, we are awaiting the new heavens and the new earth, the fullness of that promise to restore what was lost in Eden. That's why it was our assurance of pardon. And the message really is simple. Despite small beginnings, the kingdom of God will win out in our hearts and the world and the spiritual world everywhere. And you can see that alluded to in 3 verse 1, the house of David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. The kingdom might be opposed, but the works and ways of God are greater than him. There's nothing that will stop the kingdom of God from being established on him. But uh, we've said the kingdom is uh, opposed and is rarely received well by man because mankind, we live in open rebellion to the kingdom of God outside of Christ. That really is the story. God made everything good, but we decided to rebel against him and live outside of his good design. And chapter 3 and 4 really are uh, a summary of that. And if we look at the 30,000 foot view of those chapters, there's a seven year war between David and the house of Saul. And we see various ways that our sinful hearts resist God's kingdom and the establishment of it. And we're just going to focus on, on three of them this morning. First is the character Abner. And he really represents resisting the kingdom by manipulation and by force, by using God instead of worshiping God. Uh, then there's Joab, who's not expressly mentioned in our band, the worship folder, but uh, you'll see, if you look at your Bible starting around 326, he actually subverts the kingdom by disobedience and revenge. And then uh, finally, in, in chapter 5, we see the Jebusites, and they represent resisting the kingdom by mocking the wisdom of God and resting in the strength of men. So that's what we'll see in this the second point of the kingdom of men. Because Abner, he really is a cautionary tale to believers and unbelievers alike. Because within each of us, there's a temptation to become a here against the kingdom of God because we don't like what God is doing. Or maybe even more dangerously, we don't like how he is doing whatever he's doing. And Augustine wrote a, a book titled The City of God where he compares what he calls the, the city of man or the, the kingdom of man and the city of God or the kingdom of God. And in it, he brilliantly coins this term, the kingdom of And he, he summarizes that as the lust to dominate becomes the lust that dominates. And it really is the defining characteristic of the city of man, and it's a perfect description for Abner. He has become dominated by his desire for power. And so if you look in your Bibles, you'll see that Abner establishes uh, Saul's son as this kind of puppet king, but he's really controlling everything behind the scenes the whole time. And yet, you go down a few more verses in 9 and 10 of chapter 3, Abner actually quotes God's promise to David from 1 Samuel. He knows, as decrees, that David will be king. And yet, he spent seven years resisting David's kingship and David's kingdom. And after he's proved that you can know the words of God and never actually know them. You can be familiar with the theology and church and culture of the church, but never submit yourself to the worship of God over here and be left on the outside of the kingdom. And the really dangerous part is that the results can be immediately satisfying. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 3, it's a long war. Adam gets seven years of being in charge, of having his absolute and total control, never submitting himself to the will of the Lord. His plan almost works. 
But we also see there that his side was weaker and weaker because seizing control of your life almost never like works like you expect it always to get to It's an illusion to think you're ever really in control of your life. And I mean, we, we all know this, right? Because any dollars, any amount makes the dollar sign of your bank account, does that ever make you sleep better at night? Actually. Parents, you know this because there's no amount of instruction or training you can give your child uh, that makes you worry about them less as they keep growing up and becoming more independent. See, we're never really in control. We always uh, live in a world that is bigger and stronger than us that we can't possibly plan or scheme for every circumstance. And so after his plan starts to fail, uh, which is also in chapter 3, but not in the worship folder, and then he reveals the second tendency in our heart that is when our, our desire to make ourselves God famous, we try to acknowledge and manipulate God to get what we want. See, God's not beautiful to Abner, he's just useful to him. He's someone not to be worshipped, but someone to be manipulated and used. And that is the problem with legalism and moralism. There's that tendency in our hearts, right? If I fill in the blank, then God will bless me. But that's really just manipulating him to giving us a blessed life. And it's everywhere in our world, whether politicians or news anchors or athletes, there are appeals to God that are, that are nothing more than an attempt to gain his blessing without his presence, without submitting ourselves to his kingship. And it's just gross. One commentator said, Abner is not far from any of us. And it's, it's really true. He's in all of our hearts. Uh, but his ways never pay off because Abner has a rebel to God's will. He sacrificed his life on the altar of success and power rather than submitting to the king. And as, as that commentator continued, he said, Abner's not far from any of us, uh, and neither is Job. But that's the second temptation. We see Job kills Abner in chapter 3 to satisfy a love feud. Abner killed Job's brother, so Job, Joab kills Abner, even though David had ordered him not to. It's an eye for an eye, a fight fire with fire. And he really represents the temptation to resist the kingdom by subverting the king, paying lip service, but refusing to obey because we desire something the king prohibited. Joab sees vengeance as justice. So he takes matters into his own hands and operates by the conventional wisdom of the world rather than the word of the king. And I think we can find ourselves in issues really quite quickly. If we experience injustice, it's, it's very easy to let that drive us to rash action rather than trusting in the will and the word of God. Right? Joab knows the command of the king and disobeys it anyways. And so the question he poses is, can you see the place in your life where you know the word of the Lord and you live in contradiction to it anyways? Because we often disapprove of how God is setting up his kingdom and question the circumstances of our life. We let emotions of the moment dictate what we believe about God. And really, this is wildly prevalent in our Western culture. If you think of our culture's view on sex and sexuality, we're one of the many cultural movements based on the ideas of justice. Because what we've done is a modern Western culture has taken the ideas of Christianity, like justice and love and human rights, and decided we know how to define them better than the king himself. We believe ourselves to be more just or more good or more loving than God is, just like Joab probably thought himself to be more just than the king. 
But the Lord, the Lord's word is the only place we can find true justice or goodness or love. And so we have to be careful not to adopt the fight fire with fire mindset of the world. Because in the kingdom of God, his citizens operate in ways that seem like foolishness to the world. And that really is the lesson of the Jebusites if we skip down to chapter 5. They don't resist so much by force or subversion, but rather by mocking and resting in the strength of man. See, the walls they built around Jerusalem uh, were a symbol. They were a symbol of the strength of man and man's abilities. It was a fortress. And they're, they're pretty confident in it. I mean, look at verse 6 in chapter 5. Why can Lincoln hold you off? It's another way of saying, David, you can't win. I don't care who your God is. You can't beat us. Uh, but Samuel, and he, he does this wonderfully because he uses one verse to describe the taking of Jerusalem. It's not this big to do. It's just really quick. In no time at all, they have to scale the walls and take in the stronghold in the city. Why? Because the Lord had given it to him. And that really is the lesson. The rival kingdoms of this world in our hearts and in the greater world around us tempt you to resist the kingdom of God with strength and force, or with revenge for the idea that you are more just and loving than God, or with mocking the meek and humble ways of the kingdom. And sometimes they, it seems like they're right. Sometimes when we trust in God and operate in his ways and timing, it seems like the world is doomed, like the kingdom will never come. But scripture is clear, it will come to pass because God has decreed it by Jesus. And as the people of God, we have to be first citizens who submit to his kingdom before any other. Uh, Gene Edwards wrote a great book called uh, the story of, or a Tale of Three Kings, and it's really the story of David and Saul. He almost novelizes it. And in it, Edwards imagines David saying something like this to um, Joel when he doesn't kill Saul better. Saul kills me in one of these ways. I will not practice the way of mad kings. I will not throw spears, nor will I allow hatred to grow in my home. Not now, not ever. The people of the Lord must operate differently than the world. Because the ways of the kingdom seem backwards, upside down, and ultimately foolish to the world. But the kingdom grows and flourishes nonetheless because it's established by God and not man. And as we come to the end of the text this morning, that's really what we see. David is finally anointed king over all of Israel after operating in the ways and wisdom of God rather than in the ways of the world. He's the shepherd king that will protect his people from every threat and gather them near to him in comfort. And this is the good news that as King David reminds us that Jesus, the warrior king, reigns. And he will crush Satan and rout every enemy and overcome all opposition to his kingdom for the sake of his people. See, David, like Jesus, is the anointed one God filled with his spirit to accomplish his work in the world. Saul, too, had been anointed, but he was a king who chased after Israel's heart, and by seeking the glory of men first, he lost the kingdom. David, on the other hand, is the king after God's own heart, and by seeking the Lord first, he receives what Saul lost. And that's 336. If you look there, it says that the people took notice that it pleased them as everything the king did pleased the people. People love David because David is not concerned with their opinions. He's free to actually lead and love them because his heart is so aligned with the will of the Lord. See, he's on a mission to lead God's people in the way of the Lord, not cater to them. That's radically different from how Saul tried to establish a kingdom. 
And the elders of Israel even recognized David as king if you look at the beginning of chapter 5. Even though Saul and Abner had masqueraded as the king in his place, their presence did not diminish the reality of David's actual authority and actual role as the shepherd king of God's people. And the end of chapter 5 makes it pretty clear why. See, David was great because the Lord was with him. The Lord had established him as king. The Lord had exalted David for the sake of his people. It wasn't even about David. It was about the Lord delivering salvation to his people. David is on a mission with the Lord, aligned with his will and his heart in a way that causes him to live from faith rather than flesh, leading the people in faith as well, just like Jesus does for his church. David was the king who established justice and righteousness and peace rather than boasting in his own strength or chasing rivals. He was the king secure in the promises of God rather than eyeing rivals with jealousy and rage. He was the king who has the spirit of the Lord indwelling him rather than just the gifts of the Lord clothing him. As the king after God's own heart, David becomes the king who reflects God's heart, and that is a king worth following. We can see it in David's reaction to the death of Abner. David mourns Abner, the funeral and fasting, and that seems weird to somebody who, uh, from the outside looking in, just sees a rebel to his kingdom. But David was the king who loved his enemies, seeking to win them back to himself rather than hounding them across the country as they hid in caves. He's also the king who wouldn't be manipulated or used by Abner and overcomes him. Because David is quite a different king. He is loving, but he's not naive. He is just, and he's kind. He is strong, defeating his enemies, and he's good, leading for the sake of his people. And David's kingdom is quite different, too. It gets small and hidden, and even without doing much of anything, though, that kingdom expands. And all he really does is trust and obey the Lord, and all his enemies fall before him, and his kingdom grows. Because the true king trusts in the Lord to deliver God's promises rather than taking things into his own hands like kings of this world do. And that really brings us full circle to our quote from John Calvin. The life of David is just a foretaste of the reign of Christ. Our king, Jesus, the better David, will establish a kingdom far greater than Israel because he won't keep his kingdom stashed away in the hills of Judah. He's going universal with it. And on the cross, he kills sin and death, the great opposition to his kingdom, the divider of God and man. And now we are forever his, and he is ours, and that is the great hope of Christianity. The special presence of God with us, his people, that brings his blessing. We're reunited to him. And that really is the gift, because all the other gifts, like joy and blessedness and peace and satisfaction, they don't exist apart from him. See, the kingdom of the king brings God's presence to dwell with his people in the kingdom. And he does that after rescuing them from every enemy. And that is what David shows us. But we said David is also an example of spirit-generated change in the life of a believer. Because while David is like Christ, he is not actually Christ. And so David uh, reveals the path that believers walk in faith. And I think the message really is simple yet profound. Uh, and I, I read this from an author who wrote a book called Just Show Up. And he simply says, just show up and keep plotting. David spent 20 years waiting to become king, running and hiding in caves, living in foreign countries, being chased by an enemy, and losing pretty much everything he had. Yet in all of that, 
He did not have to figure out the how of what God was doing in his life. He just had to trust in faith that God would keep his promises and keep working. David just had to show up and keep walking on the path God had set before him. So Christian, just show up. Just keep walking in faith and trusting the promises of God. That really is the Christian life. You don't have to know exactly what God is doing in your life. You don't have to know exactly how he's doing it. You just get to wake up every day and trust that God is working to bring glory to his name and good to you, his people. Because if you look at your true king on the cross, you have the answer to what he is doing and you have the reason to trust him fully. See, salvation from your king is not simply giving your life to him like you like to say in Western culture. It really is something he works for you. So you can just show up and rest in his strength and his goodness to save you as the king. See, we live east of Eden, awaiting the return of our king. In the middle, we're not so different from the kingdom in Eden. The king has been anointed and he rules. He rules from the throne that God's given him, but we wait to see that fully realized. We wait for that promise that we read in Revelation 21 this morning. But that day, the kingdom will no longer be the small, unseen thing, but will be the visible, everlasting dwelling place of God and his people together. So in our waiting, look to the promises of God. No, not even the gates of hell will prevail against his kingdom. Know that in Christ, God has won the victory over every rival kingdom in your heart and in this world. Look to the true shepherd king, Jesus, who is the revelation of God's heart for you. He's the one who drives away the lions and wolves with the same arm he uses to gather his flock to and comfort. His kingdom comes. His will is done on earth as it is in heaven. So you don't have to be discouraged by the small appearance of the kingdom in this world. You can be encouraged because your king reigns. And that truth, that's why we can say, Christ, the true and better David, lowly shepherd, mighty king, he, the champion in the battle, where of death now is thy sting. In our place he bled and conquered, crowned him Lord of majesty. His shall be the throne forever, and we shall enter his people be. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for the promise of the king, for the promise of the king. Uh, how good is it to know that our king is not uh, a king like the world, not a king like the nations. He is a quite different king. A king that reflects your heart and reveals your work to establish a kingdom where we can be reunited with you in a perfect relationship once again with you and with others. I promise. Encourage our hearts and our faith this morning as we live in a world where the kingdom might seem small and unseen. Encourage our faith to know that it really is the all-encompassing reality of the world, that you, your son reigns, and you are working everything to your glory and to our good. We love you and we praise you. Let us worship you as our king this morning. Let us love you. We love you. In your son's name, amen. Uh, amen. So here's, here's the good news, church, is that uh, your king reigns. And he is the one who has authority and power to promise you things and deliver on them every time. And that's why we get to hear this benediction this morning as we go out. Uh, so hear this promise over you this morning. That the Lord will bless you and keep you. He will make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. He will turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. So we can go and see you